So this morning's reading comes from the book of Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the reading. Amen. Well, we've been a little mean and set Alex a tough challenge today. <laughs> We've just two verses to speak on. We did offer him a second passage, so, uh, but I think he's being brave and is going to preach on the two, on the two verses that were given to him. So let's welcome Alex um, amongst us this morning. Alex, would you come? Um, and I informed Alex when uh, we were talking about this service that we're a nosy lot and we like to know something about the people who talk to us. Um, so Alex was a good sport and decided that he would be interviewed. Um, so he's going to tell us a few things about himself. So... Um, are you on? I'm just, yes. Yes, yes you are. <laughs> That's great. Um, Alex, can you tell us something about who you are? Um, 40 year old white male. <laughs> I'm newly arrived in this part of the world. I've, um, I've been in ministry for 16 years. I started off in a uh, parish in Oxford. And then I spent uh, five years in Fareham. And then I've just had six and a half years in the inner city of Portsmouth, uh, one of the most deprived parishes in the country. Uh, And now I'm in very leafy um, Newnham. So um, I'm feeling quite um, happy at the moment with my circumstances. Um, But uh, I'm a South Coast person. Um, I grew up near Brighton, uh, right by the sea, and my parents still live there, and I love to go back there. I'm someone who loves the sea. Wonderful. And... um we love to know about people's testimony. Um, can you share something about how God has worked in your life? Yeah. Um, the easiest thing really would probably be to tell you about lots of other people. Because uh, my experience is that God sends us angels, uh, messengers, prophets, if you like, Amen. in the form of other people. Um, I was born into a lovely Christian family and I was really evangelised by my parents and by the local church and a whole series of Sunday school teachers and church leaders who um, cared for me, took an interest in me and enabled me to grow up within the church and began to discern in me uh, the possibility of a vocation to ministry. So God has always been there and the gospel story and living within the story of Jesus has always been part of my life. Uh, There have been some wonderful moments when my sense of connection with God and devotion to Jesus and determination to follow Jesus have been deepened and strengthened. Um, But I'm really blessed in the fact that he's always been there. And I've always had that sense of being able to call God my father and Jesus my brother. Amen. And, and Alex, finally, uh, we've been seeing quite a lot of you here in Campbell, and that's been lovely because you came here to launch uh, the new Darston strategy just, um, I think, last week or the week before. Yeah, yeah. Um, so welcome back. But can you also tell us something about what excites you in your new role as Archdeacon? Yes. I should probably say something about what an Archdeacon is. Yes, you probably should, yes. Because <laughs> yes. be, it's perfectly all right not to have a clue. Um, uh, Camborne Church, you're an ecumenical church, and so you, are, you have the privilege of being part of a number of systems of church governance 
Um, and, but yes. one of those systems of church governance is to do with the Church of England. And so you are part of the Diocese of Ely with the Bishop of Ely, and uh, that's a very large geographical area that takes in the whole of Cambridgeshire and a little bit of West Norfolk. Um, that's too much for the bishop to, to pay attention to uh, the whole thing all the time. And so it's divided into two halves, a northern half and the southern half, and they're called archdeaconries, and each has an archdeacon. So um, I'm the archdeacon for the southern half, and my job is to work with the bishop to help support parishes and churches at a local level and hopefully make things easier. Um, and what excites me about that is, uh, one, I love the variety of the church. I've, I've worshipped in many different churches. My parents go to a Baptist church. In, my, in fact, my father is the lead senior elder in a Baptist church. Um, so I've worshipped in a whole variety of churches. And one of the lovely things about my job is that I get to go around. So um, two, there'll be two different churches today. I think last week there were three uh, on a Sunday. And, uh, and that's just great to see the way in which God reaches out to people um, in different ways and meets people where they are. And uh, so I love the variety of the life of the church. And I particularly enjoy the opportunities that I have to encourage local churches uh, to go deeper in their relationship with God uh, to uh, do more in service to the community, reaching out to the community, both in terms of meeting needs, uh, but also in terms of sharing our faith, um, and also inviting new people in to be <coughs> disciples alongside us. So, so those are three just great parts of my role. There are some other bits that are a bit more boring than that. Emails are quite a major feature. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that with us, Alex. Let's pray for Alex, who's going to share his reflections with us. Father God, we thank you that you have brought Alex um, to be um, the Archdeacon of Cambridge and to be part of our life together. We thank you for his involvement in groups such as Shared Churches and, um, and, and in the wider life of this church. And we thank you for the opportunity for him to speak here this morning. Um, help him to speak your word to us, that by your spirit and through Alex, you may speak richly into our hearts and minds. Come, Lord Jesus, and give him the words to speak to us this morning, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you were writing a letter... In uh, the ancient world, at the time that the New Testament was written, there was a particular form, a set pattern for the beginning, just as there is now, in fact. So letters um, around the time that the New Testament was, uh, was written uh, very sensibly began with the name of the writer, um, uh, something that we don't do these days, of course. And then that would be the, by, followed by the name of the reader, And then there would be a brief word of greeting. And that is exactly what we find in the first two verses of the letter to Philippians. Um, Though actually not quite exactly. Because although we do have uh, a beginning, Paul and Timothy, the writers of the letters, and we hear uh, that it's being written to the people of God in Philippi, uh, Paul and Timothy Timothy have developed 
this style a little bit to add some really profound religious content. Um, I think a sermon on the openings of letters would probably be really quite useless, uh, but a sermon on the religious content that Paul and Timothy bring to this letter, I think, is rich. So the most obvious thing to notice about this letter is that it's not just a letter between two people or two groups of people. There is a third party. And this third party seems to be someone pretty important. Perhaps even more important than the writers, Paul and Timothy, or the readers, the people of Philippi. Paul and Timothy get one mention, the people of Philippi get one mention, but the third party is mentioned three times. I'm talking about Christ Jesus, of course. Whatever the relationship between the writers and the readers of this letter, it's clear that Christ Jesus plays an important part. The first time he is mentioned, it's said that he is someone who is served by Paul and Timothy. The third time he's mentioned, it is as one who, with the Father, dispenses grace and peace. Both important things to note one who is served, and one who dispenses grace and peace. But it's the second mention of Christ Jesus that really gets to the heart of the matter, I think, when we hear about all God's holy people in Christ Jesus. What does this mean? How can anybody, holy or otherwise, be in Christ Jesus? And why does it matter anyway? Well, that little phrase, in Christ, and equivalent phrases, occurs 21 times in the letter to the Philippians, and 165 times across the whole of Paul's letters. So it's safe to say that it's one of his big ideas, so to speak. And not surprisingly, it has caught the attention of biblical scholars and theologians who've written books and books and books on the topic. And the reason for all of these books and books and books is because being in Christ is one of Paul's big ideas, but it's also rather hard to pin down exactly what it means in terms of a simple and clear definition. Instead, it seems to cover a whole variety, a whole number of elements and aspects of what it means to be a Christian. In some places, it indicates that believers are inseparable from Jesus Christ. In other places, it indicates that they are in some way included in a mysterious way in Christ And in still other places, it denotes the relationship formed by Jesus between God and God's people. And then there is the question of how anyone becomes in Christ. What's the mechanism for this union or incorporation? Faith, baptism, and the presence of the Spirit in the believer all seem to be important here. But it's clear to me, and probably to you too, that I'm not going to manage to untangle all of the knots and completely solve the puzzle this morning. That would take 
books and books and books. And that also doesn't worry me very much, because for all the richness and breadth of meaning that we may find under the heading of being God's holy people in Christ, there are two things that would seem to me to make a big impact on our daily lives as Christians. And these two things are connected with one of the great and glorious tensions in the Christian faith. A tension between being and doing, between grace and works. We live in a culture that tends to value doing and works. In fact, I'd go as far as to say that we live in a culture that tends to value people for their doings and their works. There's so much emphasis on achievement in our society. Our children in school are tested and tested and tested again to see how well they are doing. At work, we're increasingly measured and managed according to our performance. Even among friends, there is often a more or less gentle rivalry about who has achieved the highest wealth or status or appearance of beauty. How well did you do? How much have you earned? What have you made of yourself and your life? I've no doubt that some people here can answer with quite great satisfaction those questions that you've done and earned and made well so far. And there may be others, of course, who are not so confident about their success. They may have lost more than they've earned in any or every aspect of their lives. But on whichever side of that line that you happen to fall today, there are the same killer questions. Where do you get your sense of security? What tells you how much you are worth? Where do you put your faith and your trust? Now, there are many different ways in which people might answer those sorts of questions. But the Gospel and today's readings gives us just one. If we are in Christ, then we share in the security of being a chosen child of God. If we are in Christ, then we share the worth, the value of a beloved child of God. It's this union with Christ and this alone that merits our faith and trust. Everything else is secondary. And this is good news of great joy. Being in Christ takes us out of the doing, the rat race, the competition, the grasping of everyday life. And it takes us out of the doing into a new world, a new kingdom, as the Bible says, of gift and thanksgiving. This is grace, not works. It is the free gift of God which can never be earned but only received and shared. And it is for everybody. And it has nothing to do with what you have made or failed to make of yourself and your life. For this is God's life given to you in Christ Jesus. We are all God's people in Christ Jesus 
So grace wins, not works. Being, not doing. But that's not quite right, is it? I don't know if you noticed when I gave you that quotation, all God's people in Christ Jesus. Because what the text actually says is all God's holy people in Christ Jesus. And that little word, holy, might seem to bring doing and works back in through the back door, so to speak. Isn't holiness something that you have to, something to do with how you live your life, what you do? Isn't holiness something, in a sense, that you have to kind of earn? Well, my answer to that is no, but with a very little bit of yes. Let me explain. The Greek word that we translate holy is hagios. And the fundamental core meaning of hagios is different from or other than. So when Paul and Timothy write to God's holy people, the underlying meaning is God's different from or other than people. Which is to say people who are not like everybody else and in some sense set apart from the rest of the world. But before you get puffed up with any ideas that you are special, we need to join up the dots with what I've said so far. And if we do this, we can see that the character of holiness that is ascribed to Christians, their difference from other people, is about where they stand, not what they do. Christians are set apart from the world because they are in Christ. Once again, we find that it is grace, not works, that lies behind holiness. It is a gift, not something that we have achieved for ourselves. But, but there is a problem. I wonder if you thought of it. Let me help. The problem is that it's all very well to say that Christians are different from other people, but are they actually I mean in the day-to-day sense of how their lives look when you compare them with everyone else's. And the answer is often, and I'm thinking of myself at the moment, that Christians' life are not so very different from the lives of other people. And that feels like a rather disappointing thing to have to say. It doesn't seem right, even though it may be true. And I'm not the first person to have noticed this. And perhaps sometimes you've noticed it in yourself. And the New Testament, already, within a couple of generations of Jesus himself, has begun to explore this idea that Christians are set aside. They're in Christ. They're different from. And that makes all the difference in the world to their lives. And yet somehow it sometimes doesn't make any difference in the world to their lives. And so alongside the assurance that we are in Christ Jesus, which is a gracious gift of God that can never be earned, there is also a language that suggests progress and development, growing in maturity into the full stature of Christ. Christ. 
as we read in the letter to the Ephesians. We need to be clear about what this means, because it's easy to take it the wrong way. Being in Christ is entirely a gift of God. And you cannot in any way become more in Christ or less in Christ by what you do. But you can learn to inhabit your identity more fully. You can learn to inhabit your identity in Christ better. It's a bit like moving from one country uh, to another country and changing your citizenship. So let's say you move tomorrow to France and you apply and are successful and you become a French citizen. So you are now in France as a French person. But it's probably going to take you many, many years to learn the language in all of its depth and richness and to learn the culture in all of its mysterious variety and in order to fit in entirely with your new place, the place where you now live. And it's the same with being in Christ. You live in him. You call yourself a Christian after him, and you're quite right to do so. But there is still a journey to be made before you are fully in accord and at home with him. And this is what we call the path of discipleship, of following and learning. And it's not a path that we follow on our own. For notice that Paul and Timothy write to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus. That all stands for the church, the body of Christ, the assembly of Christian believers. And the church, the body of Christ, is the school of Christian virtue, if you like. It's where we learn what it looks like to live in union with our body's head. And so our practices of prayer and Bible reading, of fellowship and sharing in communion help to form us ever more closely in the likeness of Christ. And so we are called together to support and to encourage one another along this road of discipleship. God, by his grace, has brought us together and united us in Christ This is where we belong. This is our home. This is our identity. And together we need to become more and more at home, more and more who we truly are. So to go right back to the beginning where I started, the relationship that exists between the authors and the readers of the letter to the Philippians is rooted in the identity of all God's holy people in Christ Jesus. None of us have earned this status or even deserve it, but together we are called to inhabit it better. We celebrate with joy being together in Christ, and we pray together that our lives may be conformed to his, that we may as our new diocesan strategy hopes, I couldn't help but bring it in, that we may become people fully alive in Christ. May it be so.
Amen.